Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for grace in this time. We pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit. We pray for a deeper understanding of the simple things of the faith as we see them occurring in the text through the example of your people from the first century who are our people. We thank you for this great legacy. And I pray that you help me Deliver these things now, in Jesus' name, amen. Often it happens with we humans that while the simple answer to a given question is the right one, we eschew the simple answer in favor of one that's much more complex. And if you've noticed, we tend to track this way even more so when it comes to issues of greater significance, the greatest significance, very often. So relationships, career, religion, etc., And the idea, I think, seems to be that because these things and others like them are so profoundly important, then the nature of them must be enigmatic and mysterious, and they can therefore only be understood through mystical means, or if not, then through material means. Because as Americans, we have seldom met a problem that we don't at least attempt to just throw enough money at to resolve. Well, in keeping with this, false representations of Christianity have in many instances sought church growth by either being mystical and frankly weird or by behaving like corporatists. And on the weird front, you have the charismatics and the barking like dogs and running around uh, in their church services and all of that nonsense. And this they do as an absurdly imbalanced attempt to correct a perceived lack of sufficient emotional expression by some individuals. But you also have in this category something that I'm more familiar with, And that is fundamentalists feebly attempting to imitate the world only to end up coming off like unintentionally absurd caricatures of the world. Uh, For those of us who were allowed, good or bad, to go to actual rock concerts when we saw the church attempt to do some approximation of that, we were less than impressed. We just found it pathetic and strange. On the other hand, though, and often in addition to being weird, These falsely Christian movements throw tremendous sums of money at church growth, and they do not do this to buy more theologically sound gospel tracts typically or Bibles, but rather to construct behemoth buildings and to fund programs heaped upon programs heaped upon programs. And they did have temporary success with this. If we're being honest, this was the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, 
and into the early 2000s, but that growth proved fleeting, and that's why these behemoth buildings are now mausoleums. All of this has thoroughly failed because despite their best efforts, they were never going to be better at worldliness than the world is. Yet untold thousands of trees have given their lives in service to this cause. Author after author wrote book after book for multiple decades, espousing complex solutions consisting of corporatism, pragmatism, or charismaticism, and sometimes all of those at the same time when the simple and correct solution was staring them right in the face the whole time, and yet they ignored it. And what these now debunked church growth gurus were manifesting was this strange feature of our natures as human beings that causes us to overlook honest simplicity in order to pursue complicated solutions that don't actually solve the pressing issues. And on that note, here is a pressing issue for you, Christian. How does the church of Christ grow best? What is the most effective tool for growing authentic in churches, whether we're in a context of modernists or mystics or something in between? Well, wouldn't you know it, Luke is going to give us the answer to this question today. And on the way to that answer, though, we will be receiving a lot more answers to a lot uh, uh, of additional questions. We're going to be in Acts 13, 1 through 3. I'm going to give you some much-needed historical analysis as well as some application and then eventually we will get to that immensely important and yet shockingly simple to answer question that I just posited to you. So Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Well, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So to the exegesis, first let me introduce to you the cast of Acts 13, 1 through 3. And we're going to go through these in the order that we encountered them in the text. First off, there is Barnabas, and I will say little about him because I have already introduced him to you, but he is a son of encouragement, an eminently qualified man, and that's why he was sent to inspect the uh, revival at Antioch and to either uh, affirm its credibility or to go the other way. Again, because we know him, we'll move on quickly to Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, why that particular Latin surname? What do you think? The answer is obvious. As the name suggests, he is a black man and almost certainly an African. And we believe the latter conclusion because it's logical based upon the former, but also because of what we know of the next cast member named as a leader in the Antioch church, and this is Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in North Africa. And so Lucius is almost certainly a black man as well. Now we, in a bit, are going to round off this list of Antioch church leaders, but let's pause here and ask ourselves why Luke has given us uh, these surnames, Theophilus first, but us by extension. And then once we've answered this question, we'll deal with what we ought to make of this as Christians and especially in light of our identity politics-addled culture. 
So why does Luke use these surnames? Well, there are multiple reasons, and I'll give them to you now in what I at least believe to be an order of least to greatest. First off, Luke is giving an authentic accounting of historical events to Theophilus. Luke is again acting as an investigative journalist, and this is far too important an endeavor, considering what he is accounting for, to leave this account as hearsay, which is what it would amount to without him citing his sources. He needs to have names. He needs to have places. He is recording actual historical events. And in fact, these people are contemporaries of Theophilus. So Theophilus could conceivably go back and talk to these people later, corroborate events for himself. Now, in our context, unfortunately, rumors are often sufficient to destroy somebody or to incite some movement or another of profound significance even. And so perhaps we forget that a witness should be named or else they should not be considered credible. But Luke has not forgotten. Now, that's more general, though. So more specific to our text and ascending through the list to something at least more directly relevant to this, these surnames are here because Simeon's not the only Simeon in the gospel and early church narrative, and Lucius isn't the only Lucius either. And surnames and additional descriptions are a necessary means of differentiation. With Simeon, who is called Niger, the differentiation here is between him and Simeon of Cyrene, who carried Christ's cross, as recorded in Luke's gospel. But although this Simeon is not from Cyrene, but presumably another African city, Lucius is. And why is he differentiated this way? Well, because he's not the author of this work, referring to himself. Lucius is Luke in Latin. But although he's not the author of this work, Luke has probably already introduced us to this Lucius. We just did not know it at the time. Acts 11.20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. It is very possible that Lucius of Cyrene was amongst those. Now then, we are left with the greatest reason that these surnames have been used, and that is to reveal to Theophilus the global nature of Christ's conquest. This is, of course, not the first time that I have mentioned this to you, but it is a theme, and I will keep mentioning it to you as often as it occurs. This is about King Jesus taking this culture and that culture at will as represented often by individuals. And so these ethnic distinctions are given to demonstrate yet again, as was the case with the Ethiopian eunuch, that Christ is king of everything. So again, by way of review somewhat, this isn't about skin color. It's not even really about the individual players involved. It's more about the human mosaic being stitched together by the Lord Jesus. These various markers of origin and ethnicity are not being given to us because Luke was intersectional before intersectional was cool. The point is that what was promised through Abraham is coming to fruition in Christ and through his church. And that is, of course, that all the nations of the world would be blessed by the Messiah. What began in Jerusalem has, in just a short time, made its way through Samaria and the Samaritans, who were half Jews and half Assyrians, and then to an Ethiopian and through him to the Ethiopians, and then to Saul, who was likely a member of the Sanhedrin, and then to a full-on Gentile who served the very empire that was forcibly occupying Israel, that's Cornelius and his whole household, and then through the Antioch revival and the myriad of nationalities involved in that, 
including, as we have learned now, two black North Africans, because Christ is king of everything. But again, this conquest that we have been witnessing of this type and then that, and the gathering of different categories, does not now mean something different because these dear brothers are black and we live in a society that reduces everything to skin color. Nor is this some sort of justification for affirmative action in Christ's church, which does very much happen. And that's why I'm raising these issues to you so that you are not ignorant of these things. I remember something like 10 years ago, it's quite a while ago, uh, hearing an interview of a pastor, though I use that term loosely, named Matt Chandler. And he was describing how he hired other pastors into the church or at their satellite churches, which that's not a thing either, but that's another lesson for another day. But he was describing this process, and he had this scale that he had determined, and he used numbers. It was a 1 to 10 scale, rating competency. And it's been a while. I believe there was a two-point distinction. I think it was if I have a black guy who is a seven and I have a white guy who's a nine, well, then I won't hire the black guy who's a seven because then I would be patronizing him and I would be the, the thing that I'm accusing others of being. But if I have a black guy who's an eight and a white guy who's a nine, then I'll hire the black guy. Is that the way any of this is supposed to work? Do you think Lucius and Simeon are diversity hires? No, they are not. We can be sure that they came to be leaders in Antioch in the same way that Saul and Barnabas have come to be missionaries sent out by Antioch. Verse 2 again, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. If only we still remembered that this is how this is supposed to work in our day. God is to make ministers. It was not then for the church to choose. It is not now for the church to choose. It is for the church to recognize what God has chosen, the men that Christ has made, even without an apparently audible voice from the Spirit, but by the standard and the signs of His Word. But instead of Christ choosing through His Spirit in keeping with His Word, we choose by our wisdom in a manner similar to the way that Saul was chosen, King Saul, is any tall and handsome that doesn't work out, or just as foolishly, this person's black, or this person's white, or this person is some variation of brown that we are particularly tickled with. We shouldn't be checking diversity quotas. We should be honoring the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit has appointed Simeon and Lucius because they're faithful and gifted of the Lord, not because they're more melanated than anybody else. Which is, of course, by the way, not to say that the Lord will not use their ethnicity. That's not my point either. Does God not use our natural tendencies, uh, the cultural connections that we already have with certain people, groups? Of course He does. Okay, Use the Jews with the Jews. Uh, Paul became all things to all men for the gospel of Christ. So certainly those people who are by nature, or at least by origin those things, would naturally have an even greater connection. But that's not the same thing that they're doing. Okay, That's honoring the broad brush with which the Lord as creator paints. 
not separating people on the basis of skin color. But if we really want to put this intersectional cultural Marxism issue to rest, perhaps we just need to realize that all of us, uh, including myself, you may not have known this about me, we are biracial. I am biracial. It's true with Simeon, it's true with Lucius, it's true with me, it's true of you, you're a Christian. And neither of the races that I'm referring to now have anything to do with skin color. With people, race is an ontological category. It is a matter that pertains to being, is who you are in terms of your being. So you are first, and this is your first race, a human being. And this is obviously true of all people, not just Christians. And to be a human being carries biological markers, obviously. But spiritually, we alone, amongst all the creatures on earth, have souls. We are made in the image of God. And if you put people into categories of coffee, whether you're black or you're one creamer, two creamer, three creamers, four creamers, it's the same of all of us. No matter how perilous being out in the sun is or isn't for you, you're all made in the image of God. That is your first race. But your second race is expounded upon by Peter, and it is those who have had that image redeemed by Christ and faith in Him. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And also let me say that part of the point of all these categories of men and women being converted and brought into the church is to show Theophilus and us that Christian fellowship is based upon Christ's shed blood. It is not based upon anybody else's bloodline. This is a gift that we give to the world to show them that what happens in here is very different and all the schisms that are happening out there. How absurd is it to say that people of a certain skin color should have their own separate safe spaces inside congregations, if not their own separate congregations altogether? And this happens. Especially absurd based upon what we're observing now in Acts. Lucius and Simeon, they are what they are to the glory of God. But they're a part of Christ's church. They're not separate because of their ethnicities. That's the opposite of the point. The point is they're included. And he is again taking this civilization and that civilization and this people group and that people group and he is making them into Paul's new humanity. Again, this is a big part of a good testimony that a local church can show the world. We harmonize in the same body of believers what they cannot harmonize in the body politic. And so they will know in this way that greater is he who is in us than he who is in them. Now, all that said, pause for a second. Before we consider the next inv- individual on the list, you might be thinking we're sort of running out of types and categories at this point for King Jesus to stake his flag to or on and hills to take and we've gone through and I, and I named them we've gone through Jews and Samaritans and, and uh, Ethiopians and Antiochans I think that's how you say that and North Africans 
and a member of the Sanhedrin. What do we have left? Well, enter Manaen, stage left. Back to verse 1, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, was also numbered as a prophet or teacher, and thus perhaps a pastor in Antioch. Has been brought up with, can be rightly translated as foster brother, and it can also literally mean that they nursed at the same breast as something of a semantic range, but in any event, it certainly means that they were very close, which I think also means that holiday meals with the Herods just got really weird. And Herod the Tetrarch is the Herod of the Gospels. He was the ruler from uh, 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. in Israel. That means that he was the one who murdered all the little Jewish boys around Bethlehem in an attempt to murder Jesus. And this is the kind of stock that Manaean came from before Christ. And to apply this to us a little bit, one of the more pathetic aspects of modern Christianity, and one that I've noted numerous times, is the way that we pander to celebrities. Just a whisper is all that we need, and then we glom on as a people. Aren't we cool too? Because this cool person thinks that we're cool and is now professing to be a part of us. Kanye West, as it turns out, was not a good person to hitch our wagon to. But what is also true is that the Lord does save souls in this category as well. Manaean is an example of this. He likely had it all. Everything that moves carnal men. But the Lord brought him to the point where he realized that in fact he had nothing at all because he had not Christ. And what you're seeing in him is the marriage of it's easier for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven and... God is mighty to save. God elects individual souls and not others. But there is no single category of sinner that Christ has not staked his claim over to the glory of the Father. And we are reminded of this by ostensibly the foster brother of Herod, who has now certainly become a Christian and indeed a leader in the Christian church. And that just leaves Saul, formerly of Tarsus, but now of Christ. And like Barnabas, of course, we have been introduced to him very well at this point, so we will simply move on to considering what is happening with Saul and Barnabas in the text. Verses 2 and 3. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Uh, First, I think I would be remiss if I just skipped over the issue with fasting. A lot of Christians... um, in our context, have questions about this, and you may be one of them. I've spoken about it from the past. I'll speak about it here briefly. First off, this is still a thing. It's not something that's passed away for whatever reason. Uh, This is a very helpful tool that you have in the Christian life if you need to make a, a decision of profound spiritual significance or consequence. If your souls are burdened over a certain situation, you may fast with respect to that. Uh, you may fast if you're concerned about the condition of some other soul. If any of these are true, you may, you can, you often should fast. But understand that fasting is not some weird diet plan. We had friends who went to a church that treated it like this. They omitted certain things. And, and I, I did, I think, actually tell them, I think what you're articulating is a cleanse. They do this on the internet. It's a thing. There's probably a lot of people on Instagram doing them. You're doing the same thing right now. You're just calling it a Daniel fast. That's not what this is. 
Okay, this is you neglecting the needs of your physical body for a time in a serious way so that you may address very concerning spiritual needs. I've done this. I did this um, especially when the church was starting. And Lydia was kind enough in those times to really take the kids and leave me for a day. I did not do it often. That would not have been healthy as a man who has a family, but I would spend the entirety of the day praying and reading Scripture. Once I read through the uh, whole book of Psalms and just prayed through it. That's the point of fasting. Jesus did say that if you're out in the world and you've been fasting, you should clean your face, you should present yourself, but that doesn't mean that you should fast and just go about your regular duties. That's not what it's for. It's so that you can set aside a time and focus. And they have done that because the season that they're moving into is a critical one and the decisions that they need to make are critical too. But moving forward, take note of the answer that they received from the Lord by way of prayer and fasting. They sent away Saul and Barnabas to the mission field. And know here that as I said to you previously, I'm letting bits and pieces of ecclesiology Uh, pass us by so that I can return to it at a future point. I'm doing the same thing with missions or as it is called missiology. Okay, so we will circle back at a future point and put all these pieces together when it comes to missions, which the American church has butchered tremendously, but that'll be later. Now they'll hone in on the fact that Saul slash Paul and Barnabas are the most gifted and prominent ministers in Antioch, and that is not me honoring these men as men. It is me honoring the work of God in them, and I think pointing out what is manifestly true, which is that the Lord does not gift all men in the same way or to the same degree. But these are the men that they are sending out, letting go. And there is much to glean from this. And the first lesson is perhaps that the Antioch church regarded itself as part of Christ's kingdom first and not as a kingdom unto itself. If you want to know whether or not a minister really serves Christ or instead perhaps his own desire for prominence, this is a very good test. What is he willing to part with versus hoard? Paul and Barnabas are treasures absolute treasures. Any church would love to have these men, but they don't belong to any local church. They belong to Christ. They are His to command. It's not for Simeon and Lucius and Menaean to direct. It is for them to recognize the direction of the Holy Spirit, and they are able to because they're not building for themselves. They're building for Christ, and so they're free to set their brothers free. Now, if I may be transparent with you, I am unaware of any minister It has never struggled with putting his own church or movement above others. And if such a man does exist, I should like to meet him very much because he's a better man than I am. However, what I have at least always, by the grace of God, been able to recognize, and what we must all recognize, ministers and laity alike, is that when those selfish desires arise, they're evil, and they need to be understood as such, and therefore mortified. When you feel what is covetousness, it's what it is. When you feel that come on you for another work or over a saint who commits to another work and not to yours, go into your prayer closet and don't come out until you care more about Christ's kingdom than you do about your own. Something is spoiling in your soul. Be very wary of that. And it isn't just a thing that would happen to me. And by the way, it doesn't happen to me very much anymore. I've seen uh, enough people go to other places and 
sometimes everything that shines isn't gold, and sometimes it is. And praise the Lord, that congregation received a great brother, a wonderful sister, to the glory of God. But it happens with laity too, because you're invested in this work. And so you want people to come here. And maybe when they don't come here and they go somewhere else instead, you feel something start to turn in your soul. You've got to recognize what that is. That isn't about Christ. It's about you. Now, I know that I said I would let the missiology consideration go until later, but there is one point I just cannot help but make now. And I'll give it to you in the form of a question. Do, in your experience, by your observation, those of you in particular who, who have been in past churches, do American churches typically export their best to the rest of the world? Well, I've seen the exact opposite of this. Typically, the best stay behind and build the machine that makes all the money and all that stuff. And the worst get exported. In my past circles, there was a gentleman who came, and he was a, a legitimate and sincere servant of the Lord Jesus. And he, read a, he, he led a missions organization. And he got up and told truths I haven't heard anybody in those circles tell. He said, we're getting a lot of people in a lot of mission fields that we're sending men to saying, please do not send these men back. They don't work. They come here for prolonged vacations. And they don't work. That is typically what we do. And we do that because we don't really care about those people over there somewhere. It has been said that there is a connection between guilt and philanthropy, and I think that this is the case with this. But this is not the way that this is supposed to work. I mean, even logically and rationally, right? If you have a church that's built and you have leadership in place, it is clearly easier to maintain that than it is to start something new. But now to the seminal issue of today's study. How, oh how, do faithful churches grow? It is an enigma wrapped in a question mark. And we have already set aside diversity quotas. Can't use those. Fake manifestations of the Holy Spirit. That's now off the table. Pragmatism. Vast sums of money. Well, first let's acknowledge how much this particular church has grown in Antioch and how quickly let me say, though, that I am less concerned with numbers, which I don't know because the text doesn't give me them anyhow, and much more interested in infrastructure. The number of converts was not something that they had a hand in. That work, God to his great glory, did alone. But the maturity of the saints in Antioch was, as sanctification is with us, a cooperation between the Christian and the Holy Spirit. And consider that going back to chapter 11, Saul and Barnabas were only in Antioch for a year. 11, 24 through 26, he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Do you understand that many of the prophets and teachers of Acts 13 are new converts. We may also assume the presence of deacons here. And this is not an outlier in the book of Acts. You will see this again, this very, very fast establishment of sound and mature 
churches. Now, of course, the apostles didn't abandon these works after the fact. They corresponded via letters. They returned to check on them, but these churches were self-governing at very early stages. And we can also take off the table that this was unduly rushed. These works endured. They were successful because these men were ready. So how did they get this mature this quickly? Well, because this is what happens to Christians when there is both institutional discipleship and personal discipleship from God's Word, and they are bathed in it, and they are saturated in it. No, it cannot be that simple. Oh, but it can, and it is. And the growth that's seen in our text is the simple cause of it. Back to 11 again. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. If you have access to good Bible-believing churches, then your understanding of the role of the church is even more important in some ways than your understanding of salvation. And this is why. Because a good Bible-believing church teaches the Bible. And the Bible teaches about God and sin and salvation and brotherly love and prayer and marriage and ministry and parenting and evangelism and godly priorities. Any error that you have in understanding with any of those issues can be fixed and made right if the church will honor its primary task as a herald of the Word. Uh, But we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can do the social club things and the multimedia things and programs galore and be faithful to God's Word. No, my friend, if we could balance these things, we would have. But we haven't. And that's why we are as a movement in America and around the world in the situation that we are in. Because everything comes out of the preaching of the Word. Everything is to go into it. We are not to be divided. There are lots of things that you can do as individuals and people, and you should. Okay, socially. Things that you can pursue to the glory of God as long as they're permitted by God's Word, but that's not what we do. We do the ministry of the Word. This is why. This is what's at stake. I'm not shocked to see this meteoric growth in Antioch. Hundreds or thousands of souls get converted. They are then saturated with the finest Bible teaching outside of that which was given directly by Christ. Of course, this is going to happen. And of course, in a cast of hundreds or thousands, Christ will raise up men to lead his church by the power of his word. Men like Simeon and Lucius and Menaean will inevitably grow out of this kind of immersion in the word. And in fact, they will only grow by these means. I've seen this though many times. And in fact, I've had many occasions on which people outside of the congregation have commented to me about people inside of this congregation and said, it's incredible the pace at which they have grown. It's incredible, but it is predictable. If you have an actual convert and you have the Word of God, that's what happens every time. The world that claims to be the church has deceived even us very often. We have been led to believe by them that time is the greatest factor in spiritual maturity. Time is a factor. Time is a factor. That is a fact. 
I'm not negating that now, but it is hardly the greatest. A submissive soul saturated in the word of God is the greatest factor in determining growth. So be people of the book and don't ever get distracted. And because I am fallible and can get distracted myself, it is your role as my brothers and sisters to call me back if indeed I do. But this is what we do. We preach and we teach the Word of God and then that permeates the conversation that carries into all the other areas of our life. This is the catalyst for that. I'm not your program manager. I'm never going to be your program manager. That's not what I do. And you're to hold me to that standard. And if God by His sovereign will is moving slower or faster in a certain season, we don't depart course. Okay? We understand that He will move slower and faster. But there's no faster way to do this than with God's Word. In fact, there's no other way at all. So we're either people of the book or we are people who should find something else to do on Sundays. There is a need as people who are made in the image of God to, to satisfy social longings and the desire for fellowship and for a Christian that need is met here, but it is founded upon and centered in the work of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. That's the nature even of our fellowship. All of it comes back to the ministry of the Word, which is paramount and preeminent in all things. All other options are vanity and beneath the people of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that all the answers to church growth are there for us. We thank you that we can see it happening at a glorious pace, but ultimately, Lord, it's not about the pace. It's about the outcome, but that outcome is beautiful. To see you build your work by your eternal wisdom is the only thing that the people of God should want to see happen in this place. Let it never be because of us. Let it never be because we were creative. Let us never seek to be. Let us only endeavor to be faithful. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.